The wedding feast of Sir Philip Sidney and Francis Walsingham threatens to spill over into the next day. Dusk has fallen, lamps have been lit, and above the din from the musicians in the gallery and the laughter of the guests, the young woman with whom I have been dancing tells me excitedly that she was once at a marriage party that lasted four days altogether. She leans in close when she says this, and presses her hand to my shoulder. Her breath is laced with sweet wine. The musicians strike up another galliard. My dancing partner exclaims with delight and clutches eagerly at my hand, laughing. I am about to protest that the hall is warm, that I would like a cup of wine and a moment's respite in the fresh air before I return to the fray, but I have barely opened my mouth when the wind is knocked out of me by a fist between the shoulder blades, accompanied by a hearty cry. Giordano Bruno, now what is this I see? The great philosopher throwing off his scholar's gown and lifting a leg with the flower of Her Majesty's court. Did you learn to dance like that at the monastery? Your hidden talents never cease to astonish me, amico mio. Recovering my balance, I turn, smiling widely. Here is the bridegroom in all his finery, six feet tall and flushed with wine and triumph, breeches of copper-coloured silk so voluminous it is a wonder he can pass through a doorway, doublet of ivory sewn all over with seed pearls, a lace ruff at his neck so severely starched that his handsome, beardless face seems constantly straining to see above it, like a small boy peering over a wall. His hair still sticks up in the front like a schoolboy hastened out of bed. In all the tumult I have not exchanged a word with him since the morning ceremony. He and his young bride have been so comprehensively surrounded by high-ranking well-wishers and relatives, all the highest ornaments of Her Majesty's court. Well, he says, grinning broadly, aren't you going to congratulate me then, or are you just here for the food from my table? Your father-in-law's table, I had thought, I answer, laughing, or which part of the feast did you buy yourself? You can leave your debating hall pedantry at home today, Bruno, but I hope you have had enough meat and drink. There is enough meat and drink here to feed the five thousand. I indicate the two long tables at each end of the great hall, spread with the detritus of the wedding banquet. You will be eating leftovers for weeks. Oh, you may be sure Sir Francis will see to that, Sidney says. Today, generosity. Tomorrow, thrift. But come, Bruno, you have no idea how it pleases me that you are here. He holds his arms wide, and I embrace him with sincere affection. I am the perfect height to have his ruff smack me directly in the nose. Watch the clothes, he says only half-joking. Bruno, allow me to introduce you to my uncle, Robert Dudley, Earl of Leicester. He steps back and gestures to the man who stands a few feet away, at his shoulder. A man of about Sidney's own height, perhaps in his mid-fifties, but still athletic. His hair, steel grey at the temples, but his face fine-boned and handsome behind his close-clipped beard. This man regards me with watchful brown eyes. My lord. I bow deeply, acknowledging the honour. The Earl of Leicester is one of the highest nobles in England, and the man who enjoys greater influence over Queen Elizabeth than any alive. I raise my head and meet his shrewd appraisal. It is rumoured that in their youth he was the Queen's only lover, and that even now their long-enduring friendship is more intimate than most marriages. He smiles, and there is warmth in his gaze. Dr. Bruno, the pleasure is mine. When I learned of your courage in Oxford, I was eager to make your acquaintance and thank you in person. Here he lowers his voice. 
Leicester is the Chancellor of the University of Oxford, charged with enforcing the measures to suppress the Catholic resistance among the students. That the movement had gathered so much momentum on his watch had been a matter of some embarrassment to him. My adventures with Sidney there in the spring had helped to disarm it, at least temporarily. I am about to reply when we are interrupted by a man dressed in a russet doublet, with a peas-cod belly so vast it makes him look as if he is with child. The earl nods politely to me, and I turn back to Sydney. My uncle likes the idea of you. He's keen to hear more of your outrageous theories about the universe. I must look anxious, because he elbows me cheerfully in the ribs. Lester's friendship is worth a great deal. I am glad to have met him, I say, rubbing my side, and may I now pay my respects to your bride. Sidney looks around as if for someone to deal with this request. I dare say she is around somewhere, giggling with her ladies. He does not sound as if he is in a hurry to find her, but you are needed elsewhere. He turns and bows to my companion, who has discreetly withdrawn a couple of paces to watch us from under lowered lids, her hands modestly clasped together. I am borrowing the great Dr. Bruno for a moment. I will return him to you at some stage. There will be more dancing after the masks. The girl blushes, smiles shyly at me, and obediently melts away into the brightly coloured, rustling mass of guests. Sidney looks after her with an expression of amusement. Lady Arabella Horton has her sight set on you, it seems. Don't be fooled by all the fluttering lashes and simpering. Half the court has been there, and she will soon lose interest when she learns you are the son of a soldier, with no capital but your wit and a pittance from the King of France. I was not planning to tell her that immediately. Did you tell her you were a monk for thirteen years? We had not got around to that either. She might like that, might want to help you make up for lost time. But for now, Bruno, my new father-in-law suggests you might like to take a turn in the garden. I have not yet had the chance to congratulate him. But it is clear that this is business. Sidney rests a hand on my shoulder. No one has. Do you know, he disappeared for two hours altogether this afternoon to draft some papers— in the middle of his own daughter's wedding party. He smiles indulgently, as if he must tolerate these foibles, though we both know that Sidney is in no position to complain. Financially, he needed this marriage more than young Mistress Walsingham, who I suspect entertains greater romantic hopes of it than her new husband. I suppose the great machinery of state must keep turning. Indeed, and now it is your turn to grease the wheels. Go to him. I shall find you later.